Funding the Adventurous Life. This is your host, Chad Andrews, and hi, how are you? Is it cooling down where you are, or is it just totally winter? Fall has arrived, right? I mean, it's beautiful here in the desert, but you know, back where I came from in Colorado, people in even Salt Lake or whatever up in the Rockies, it's like snowing, it's winter. But where I'm from back east, everyone's still complaining about it being hot and humid. Fall, man. What can you say? It's like that season everyone wants to love, but it's like, yeah, it just keeps running away from you, you know? It's like the playing hard to get that fall. I don't know. It seems like every year I wait and wait and wait for the fall, and it lasts like three weeks. If you're in the Rockies or if you're in the Northwest, yeah, about three weeks. Then it goes from being 100 to like snowing and 30 degrees. But I'm really enjoying it here. The weather has turned for the best, and I'm loving life. I'm very pleased to welcome back to Clipping Chains, Mark Anderson, an elite level climber, father, husband, training enthusiast, and now former full-time engineer and manager. Mark and his family have recently achieved financial independence, allowing Mark to step away from his career and focus first on his family, and perhaps surprisingly, if you know Mark at all, climbing as a distant second priority. I want to stop here and Congratulate Mark and his wife with a little bit of sound effects. Let's get them in right here. Here we go. Oh, that's so great. That's so fun. <laughs> anyway, we're having a good time. All right. You'll probably recognize Mark as part of the Anderson Brothers duo. Along with his twin brother, Mike, the Anderson Brothers are known not only for their climbing and real-life juggling act, but for their rock prodigy training manual. That book and training plan resulted in a surge in training popularity following the 2014 publication. Mark, while juggling many real-world obligations, has sent 514D, that's D as in dog, or 9A if you're European or you know, just an American who's cool, <laughs> nabbed the first free ascent of Space Shot, that's a 513A in Zion National Park, freed El Cap, and has even summited Denali. This guy is super well-rounded, super accomplished, considering he was basically a weekend warrior until now. And we'll talk a lot about that. We talk about a ton of stuff in this interview, actually, and I'll just list off a few of them because you're here. Obviously, you're going to hear it. Obviously, we're going to cover Mark's new life mode since quitting his job, kind of how life looks when you don't have 40 hours plus of work to deal with. Mark's renewed focus on his children and their growing interest in soccer. We take a look at the Rock Prodigy training plan. Is Mark still using it? Is he still seeing gains? What has he changed over the years? Where, where is that plan after all these years? Mark's send of shadow boxing, that 514D and rifle, and the toll it took on him and his family to get it done. Mark even had a youthful dirtbagging phase. And would he go back and do that again? Mark even gets a little controversial. We talk about bolting restrictions and the perhaps perilous future of first ascents in America the pros and cons of staying in an undesirable job. And then we even look more into the nuts and bolts of how Mark and his wife saved, focused on frugality, and investing to be able to walk away from their careers if they wanted to very early in life. 
And then finally, we even cover kids. We've got climbing with kids. We've got retiring early with kids, saving money with kids. We, we discuss it all in this interview, guys. So one final note, you can find the link to Mark's original interview on this site in the show notes, along with many other relevant articles or topics discussed in this interview. And before we get going, I just want to mention, if this project is something that is bringing value to your life in any way, would you really consider sharing it with your friends, family, or whoever watches the things you put on the internet who might benefit? I'd really, really appreciate that, guys. And if you listen to this on Spotify or Apple, if you could leave a rating or review, man, that's awesome. But wherever you get podcasts, just please subscribe. You'll get all the latest. You don't have to go searching. Searching is not fun. Who's got time for searching? It just pops right up. Okay. <laughs> Let's get into this interview with Mark Anderson. Thanks so much, guys. See you on the other side. I was thinking like these like uh, radio shows where they have like hype men who are just like, they're just there to laugh at the host's they, jokes and stuff. And they just have like background noises like, ta-ding! Woo-woo-woo! <laughs> 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 hopefully it won't come to that (laughs) do you actually remember how we met uh i remember um i think i was looking for a partner on mountain project or you were i was yeah Yeah. okay i I remember just being blown away because i had gone through the ringer with like partners over the years and i i always hated using mountain project but it was one of those places i could always find a partner yeah and it wasn't always great and then all of a sudden i get this email from mark anderson and i'm like what and i'd bought your book like the training manual and, um, you know, so I was like all into your training plan at the time. I followed your blog. And I was like a pretty big fan, like quietly fan. And then you responded to a mountain project post. And I was like, what? I was like, that can't be the same guy. And I saw your email and I was like, no, that's the same. It was like your same username, I think on mountain project. And I'm like, what is this guy? What, what made you like want to go with a random climber on mountain project? Do you do that often or no? I don't do that often. I've <laughs> probably done it maybe three or four times. Um, so yeah, I don't know. <laughs> you make me feel bad about it. <laughs> no, no, I just <laughs> thought it was amazing. Thing. No, I just <laughs> thought it was amazing. I was like, I didn't think I'd ever meet like a 514 plus climber through a mountain project. And I was super nervous. I went out and like fell on a 511 and I think I apologized. I'm like, I'm not worthy. Well, so I think that's, that's really the thing. I, I think there's probably an assumption that the better you are, the more partners you have or something. <laughs> it's really the opposite really? because you kind of climb yourself out of the, you know, the, the bell curve, right? Mm. So mostly people want to climb with people who are about the same ability, but like 514 climbers don't climb together very often. It's pretty rare because you have to be pretty type A, you know, all about your agenda Mm. and getting your things done. That's true. You don't really see like 514 climbers working the same project together. It's pretty rare. And like the, you know, usually you get pretty selective about your projects, you know, at Mm. a certain point. And um, so I don't know, I found like, I don't know. I never had a lot of partners, honestly, for whatever reason. I'm not super social and, you know. And you, you've mostly still climb with your wife today? Um, I'd say four. I probably climb with the most oh, at really? this point. Okay. Um, but, um, yeah. That's a mutual yeah. friend of ours who I don't think anyone will know who that is, but yeah. Um, okay. Interesting. So you, I interviewed you on the website about three years ago. You're actually one of my first interviews. So I appreciate you there for that. Sure. Being a guinea pig on this kind of weird corner of the internet. And we talked about at the time that you were, in, we had a lot of similar interests and we'd actually never talked about it. I think when I announced this website, I sent it out to a bunch of people and I put you on the email and you're like, dude, I mean, we're doing something similar. And so you agreed to come on and kind of talk where you were. And, and I guess, well, I, I want to kind of rehash a few of those things, but in that intervening time, 
you've had some big changes. So do you want to kind of take us up to date on like what's happened for you life and career wise in the last year or two? Yeah. So I guess obviously, you know, the, uh, pandemic impacted everybody, but the big thing, um, for me would be that I stopped working <laughs> about four or five months ago. Okay. So, um, that's something that, you know, I had a date kind of in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a federal employee. So if you work 20 years, you get a pension. Um, so yeah, I wanted to get my 20 years in and that point was going to be January of 2021. So because of the pandemic, I was working from home and I was able to extend, I, I, I was able to tolerate working a little bit <laughs> longer True. than just like my minimum, you know, retirement date. So, um, I stayed a little bit longer, but yeah, um, that's the big thing not working anymore in and, a day job. And so like, what kind of led you to this? I mean, was this something you think thought about in the horizon? And, and again, folks can go and check out that written interview, but you had planned on this. This wasn't, this isn't like a, a military kind of retirement. This is like a, a cho- And first of all, do you even consider that? I mean, do you call yourself like, retired? I don't really talk about it. I, yeah. I definitely feel, you know, I've read some of your writing about it and I totally relate to that. I feel weird. You know, I feel like, 100%. um, I'll make people sad if I tell them that I'm retired or whatever. So I just, I try to avoid the topic. And then if it, it comes up, you know, usually my kids or somebody will, will burn out like he's retired before, you know, I, I say it, but yeah, I try to avoid bringing it, bringing it up. So is your wife Kate still working? Yeah, she still works. And that's just a, you know, it's a choice. I think she really loves her job. She works okay. for the National Renewable Energy Lab and she feels really passionate that, you know, that, you know, their mission is supporting our, you know, our efforts to save the planet essentially or save our own habitat. So she feels gotcha. really strongly that that's important work and she wants to keep doing it. Um, and I think she likes work too. She's, you know, she has a lot of friends there and she enjoys what she does. So, um, yeah, so she's still working, but, um, you know, she she doesn't need to strictly for financial uh, reasons. Okay, so yeah, you guys got yourself financially comfortable, but she's chosen to continue on, which is not at all an atypical story. Um, it seems for some reason all the the wives I've talked to lately are still working, and all us deadbeat. Yeah, I know. Is that like, is that funny? Because <laughs> my my wife was going to keep working, and probably it still reminds me that she'd rather be working actually right now. But all us deadbeat climber guys are like, oh, yeah. we're good without it. So we were just talking on offline while I was like struggling with technology getting set up here, but. I mean, maybe let's talk about how it's been like versus like what you thought it would be like versus actual at this point. I mean, because we kind of we both kind of came into this world amidst the pandemic and everything was just turned upside down. Yeah, I think we picked a really weird time to stop working. And now I read, you know, there's there's all this talk of the great resignation and apparently Mm -hmm. lots of people are quitting. And so, you know, I thought, you know, I'm special. I'm doing this amazing thing. (laughs) It's like, no. No, lots of people are doing it and you go outside and it does, you know, you go outside on a Tuesday and it seems like a Saturday. Exactly. So it doesn't really feel like, you know, I, I didn't ever really mind work that much. I was really looking forward to, you know, having, you know, having the option of going outside on a weekday and having things not be so crowded. Mm. And I feel like I really missed out on that because I waited (laughs) a little bit too long to quit. so. So, I mean, I've been gone from the front range for a year and a half. If that really is the case now, it seems like it's different. It's just not what it was two I years ago. I feel like it's different. And it, I think it actually started a little before the pandemic. So I don't know that I can blame the pandemic for sure. it, but it just seemed like for, for the last couple of years, like a Friday was just as crowded as a Saturday, yeah. you know, in Clear Creek or, or whatever, if you were at, at one of the popular crags. Yeah. Um, and for reference, we're, we're sitting in your house. We're kind of in the front range outside of Denver. And so, yeah, Mark's a front range climber. I used to live in Denver. I no longer do, but yeah, we, we hit all those usual spots. You've probably heard of clear Creek. And I noticed that too. I always had that Friday flexibility and it, 
it felt like the beginning of the weekend. Yeah. It was, and that's kind of the same. I now live in Utah. It's, it's similar. You know, a Friday is going to be busier. If people have flexibility, it tends to be that Friday for some yeah. reason. Yeah, for sure. More so than a Monday. Yeah. And now it seems like, you know, most, or lots and lots of people are working from home and they, there's a lot more flexibility than there was before exactly. the pandemic. So now you go out any day and it seems like, you can't really tell the difference between a weekday. And mm. I mean, there, I'm sure there is a difference and I definitely avoid going out on the weekends, but there uh, still is. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's not quite as much, you know, there used to be, you know, five years ago, I would take off around a random Tuesday from work just because the weather was right or whatever. And you'd go to the crag and there'd be nobody there. It'd right. be totally deserted, right. even, you know, five minutes outside of Denver, but that's definitely not the case now. Huh. Now every day is there's people there everywhere. So can you walk me through, like, I don't know, maybe let's start micro and go macro, but what's a day in the life for you like now? And, you know, that's a good question. So, um, I'm really heavily involved in my kids' soccer. Okay. <laughs> that's a big part of my life now. Are you a coach? Coaching soccer. Yeah. Oh, really? Okay. I'm a, I'm an assistant coach for both of my kids' teams. I have a son and a daughter. Um, I was the head coach for my kid, for my daughter's teams for the first several years. And then honestly, like the stress of it <laughs> became too much. So I decided it was best for me to not be in a head coach role, which you wouldn't think of is, you know, that much, but I get really wrapped up in the, uh, the wins and losses. And what age so, is this? So my daughter is eight and my son is 10. Okay. So you would think oh, that's where it gets serious. serious. I, mean, I played yet, baseball it is, and it got serious okay, yeah. age 10. So yeah, I mean like my son's team is going to a tournament in Vail tomorrow. And so we're heading out to Vail for a weekend long soccer mm -hmm. tournament. My daughter's doing a tournament at the same time in Denver. Um, so yeah, we, you know, practice three days a week and games on Saturdays or Sundays, sometimes both last weekend we had games on both days. So that's a lot of it, but yeah, anyway, you know, I wake up, uh, you know, do some reading, usually go for a walk. I take my kids to school. Um, you know, depending on the day, if it's a workout day, I do a workout. Um, otherwise, you know, I do domestic tasks like <laughs> shop, grocery shopping, uh -huh. usually go to the library a couple times a week things like that. Um, get the kids from school, go to soccer practice. Have you taken more of that over from Kate? Like she's kind of worked a little bit. I, don't, I wouldn't take too much credit. Um, <laughs> mostly <laughs> grocery shopping is probably the big thing that I do. Mostly that's where I'm most helpful. Okay. That sort of thing. I did just do the kids laundry. That, yeah, that's we, I made him turn off the dryer. <laughs> yeah. There's going to be too much background noise. So the kids are going to be wearing kind you of half dry clothes. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, what's what's climbing like for you? I mean, did you expect to like go harder on projects with no work in the way, or what? What's going on? There? No, not really. I mean, you know, I'm so locked into my training schedule that's it's like I was already kind of climbing as much as my body could handle. Yeah. So it's not like I'm going to suddenly like go from three hour climbing days to six hour climbing days or something like that. You know, I'm I'm 44. You know, mm -hmm. I can only take so much, <laughs> right? And and I think I never really had. Well, I, I mean, I've always looked at like work capacity as mutually exclusive with power, right? Mm -hmm. So if you want to climb really hard, you can't climb really long. And if you yep. want to climb really long, you can't, can't climb really hard. Yep. I don't, I don't really, you know, I think there's people out there who think you can increase your work capacity. Maybe you can to some extent, but I sort of believe they're kind of, you know, yeah. like Usain Bolt's never going to win the Olympic marathon, right? right? right. You're either one thing or the, uh, you're the other. So, you know, I, I made a decision really early on in my climbing that I was going for like, what's the hardest thing I can climb. So if that's your mentality, you know, you can only do so much in a day before it's like, you're just flogging yourself and you're not really going to accomplish anything. <laughs> you know, like once you've, once you're powered down, I just don't think there's yeah. any much benefit in going longer. So, okay. So, and, and you got you and your twin brother, right? Mike, yeah. you guys are known for the rock prodigy training manual. You know, it was like, yeah. it was this big deal in the training space. 
what? I mean, when did you put that out? Six or seven years ago? 2014. 2014, yeah. came out. And that thing kind of blew the world upside down in terms of like approachable training. Like obviously you guys weren't the first to talk about climbing training. Right. But you put this like template out for people like me who just like tell me what to do. Yeah. And and this like, I I mean, I believe kind of changed the training game overnight, made hangboarding very popular. Yeah. And I still joke all the time about how you used to say that it made, you know, people used to look at you like you had three heads or something because you were hangboarding yeah. in the gym in the yeah. early days. So are you still like, is this still your template? Are you still yep. like on this thing? Still pretty much doing the same thing. I mean, I think um, maybe the the biggest evolution in my climbing besides when I first started hangboarding was in the couple of years after the book came out because mm-hmm. there was so much interest in it. I got a lot of feedback from different people giving suggestions and, mm-hmm. you know, what it worked for them. And um, people asking me questions got me thinking about what are, you know, some ways to optimize this. So I went through a lot of changes in the first couple of years after the book came out, but basically since, you know, 2016 or so, I've pretty much been doing the exact same thing more or less. So, And you keep seeing gains. Um, gains is a strong word. <laughs> I've got this chart on the wall that shows like my PRs for every season or, you know, my, my high point on the hangboard for every season going back like 10 years. And you can kind of see it's pretty leveled off. So I, it's more like I struggle to like get back to where I was, you know, to get back to my best. And it, it's very, you know, it's to a point now, like I'm so optimized or whatever limited you want to call it that it's it's very season dependent like this is a fall season so i'm not going to hit my prs it's very unlikely right because winter is enough colder that on any grip that's friction dependent i'm going to be five to ten pounds better in the winter than i am now um so it's more about like can i get back to where i was when i was 39 or whatever right you know so yeah i mean i've always loved that engineer approach and i remember these charts from your blog like years ago i struggled to stay as analytical so i admire the fact that you have like because I think maybe, and you'd probably agree, the one thing people make a mistake on is like flip-flopping different modalities every mm. other month and trying yeah. new training plans just because it's like the hot new thing. Right. And I mean, I have to give credit where it's due. You have stuck to this yeah. thing for like- <laughs> Stubbornly stuck to the same thing despite a lack of results. <laughs> I mean, I don't, you know, I actually had this quote. I, I put it, let me pull it up here. I put it in a caption. It was you on shadow boxing, which is 514D, 9A if you're European. And you were the third ascent, I believe, Yeah. in Rifle. And I put this in the caption. I didn't even remember writing it, but I said, fact, no one else's coworker or dad has sent shadow boxing. So, <laughs> <That's true. laughs> I mean, Paige Clausen went on to do fourth ascent. It's all been pro climbers except you, is yeah. what Jonathan Segrist, John Cardwell, yeah. you and Paige. So, I mean, kudos to, I mean, obviously something's working. You've, 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 you and your brother have achieved a lot in climbing. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's really um, worth what you know i am really into kind of the philosophical side of training and and mm-hmm. like i think it's an interesting question um obviously what i did worked really well to a point okay and is it would it be better for me to give all that up and go in a different direction should i start like lifting kettlebells or what you know like <laughs> right. is there some other approach i'd be reading steve house's book and doing you know um uh, pushing tires around or whatever <laughs> but <laughs> i just think yeah, I, I don't know. Is is do I need to make a change, or have I just maxed out what is physically possible for me? Right. And I don't know. And I think, really, at the end of the day, I think if I'm not getting better, it's probably a lack of motivation more mm-hmm. than anything else. You yeah, know, it's like really the focus of my life. And you know, you heard me talk about my day. The focus of my life now is my kids, yeah. and just you know, yeah. my son is ten. I figure I have eight more years before he goes True. off to college. 
I have maybe four years before he starts hating me. <laughs> I want to spend as much time with him sure. and have as much quality time as I can before that happens. And, yeah. you know, so that's the focus of my life now. And I still train, I still want to climb, but it's not number one anymore. That's, that's so. a very good answer. Um, yeah, because I thought, you know, when I quit my job, I was just going to go full in into climbing. And I kind of agree. I still climb about this, climb and train about the same mm -hmm. that I did when I worked. And honestly, some days I wonder, like, did the working man, like, got to get it done today because you're going to work totally. tomorrow? Yeah. Make me a better climber, or at least a more driven climber. Definitely, like, more hustle, you know? Yeah. Like, like you had to. I felt like everything had to be squared away the day before, everything packed, ready yep. to go. Now it's kind of like I can just wake up and then like get my stuff together that day. I don't really need to think about it as much. Yeah. And it definitely, you you kind of lose a little bit of that edge of that just like, you know, I'm on a mission. I've got to get this done. I have this much time. And, right. you know, there's like no boundaries or no limits on anything. It's kind of like you can sort of lose that. I'm that probably focus. a nicer person because I oh, wasn't like sure. so driven. Like today's the day. If you're late, like you're dead to me. That's funny. I, like, I was I was thinking about that. Actually, you know, knowing this interview is coming up, I was just like, you know, one of the things that's really changed is um, I am not the nicest person. I, my natural state is kind of an asshole. And I always <laughs> felt like when I was working, I had to expend so much energy in the day not being an asshole at work, right? And like <laughs> pretending to be like a normal you know, nice guy yeah. who, who doesn't mind someone dumping all their work on them on Friday afternoon or Talking whatever. Talking about the weather. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when the day work day was done, I didn't really have much energy left for like suppressing my natural personality. <laughs> so I would tend to snap at people way more. And like, now it's like, I, I don't interact with people as much as I used to certainly. And so now like when I run into somebody, I'm like excited to see them. I'm excited to have mm. a conversation. I'm just like, generally in a sunnier, you know, more pleasant mood because I'm not being beaten down constantly by staff meetings. And, and like you said, you know, trivial conversations walking through the hall when you're just trying to get a piece of paper copied and get back to your desk. <laughs> I resonate with that hundred percent. I actually didn't realize how much I kind of missed just even idle chit chat until you have months without it. Yeah. And you're just kind of at home a lot more than you used to be. And all of a sudden you're like, man, even though I sometimes like I just hated those like kind of idle, like let's talk about the Broncos or the weather kind of yeah, conversations. Yeah. It's like even those little just injections of social stuff, you do kind of miss it. No, I find myself like striking up a conversation with like the grocery checker, which is, you know, <laughs> two years ago, I'm like, I'm the guy who's like not making eye contact. I'm paying, you know, I'm going to the self-checkout. I don't want to interact with anybody in, in the store. That's that's 100% true. So do you, do you, I mean, what do you kind of think, do you think like you'll stay like this or do you, are you kind of eyeing some sort of part-time work or what do you, what do you think? What's your, my answer to that is, you know, I've had that question a few times. It, I'm never going back to like an office environment. That life is, is just not, um, you know, I don't think it's a good life. I don't either. Um, I could see some kind of work that is, you know, on my own terms, but you know, I do want to do more writing. Hmm. Um, but yeah, something that's, um, I can't see having a boss no, again. I can't, I, I definitely can't see like driving to an office. And, um, so writing, something. do you mean like the old, like blog kind of climbing related stuff or something completely different? Um, kind of all of the above, I guess. Yeah. Like I have, um, there's been discussions for a while about another edition of our training book. Um, I don't know if that'll ever happen. Yeah, I asked you this like five years uh, ago, and you were like, "Ah, probably not." Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it could happen. Okay. There's, you know, we get have discussions off and on. Sometimes we, you know, about a year ago, we were um, 
seemed like it was going to happen. And then it just kind of petered out. Hmm. Okay. Didn't realize that. Not really sure why. Um, so that could happen. Um, it's, in some ways I feel like I'm kind of out of the loop on, you know, what is cutting edge training now, you know, I'm still doing the same things I was doing 10 years ago, more or less. So, um, I don't know that I'm the right person to write that book anymore. Um, but I could certainly update what I've changed since the first edition came out. So what what have you changed? Can you tease anything? I think there's more, uh, more in, in the mode of, non-linear periodization and, mm, you know, yeah. what are ways to, you know, extend your fitness for a long, longer time, less of a, you know, our, the first book is very much a linear periodization, kind of right. like you're doing this and then you're doing that and then you're doing that. And I, you know, I've evolved a little bit in the sense that I'm more trying to do more things at once okay. and, and main, you know, maintain your fitness longer and things like that. Especially for a place like this where you can climb year round, you don't need like, yeah, in theory, uh, yeah, in theory. <laughs> yeah, it's getting a little bit harder in the summers probably. And maybe the winter. Although you like it cold. I do like it cold. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, yeah so then so that's one thing. There's some other climbing related writing projects I've been in. I, I've kind of wanted to do that really have nothing to do with training. Um, and then there's some personal type of writing I, I would like to do hmm. as well. So yeah, we'll see. Like, but, like novel style or? Probably not a novel, but um, I, it could be a novel, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I had a really interesting group of friends growing up and I kind of want to write our story of like what, you know, we got into a lot of hijinks and antics and whatever. And um, whenever I tell these stories to people, they always find them interesting. So I, it, I've i thought that somebody, someone of our group should kind of document what we did. Um, so that's the biggest thing. And I've already written a pretty extensive outline of where, you know, that would go. So it would be sort of fiction or it would okay. be nonfiction, but it might be I could fictionalize it to protect the the names of, you know. Well, I'd love to pressure you and have you tell a story, but maybe I'll I'll wait. Unless yeah, you I'm, want to tell one. I'm not a very good impromptu storyteller. Okay. So I I actually put a lot of effort into my writing. <laughs> you know, I'm not somebody who just like, you know, oh, believe me, writes that, off that, the cuff. That's why I hesitate to do this. I'm like, can I come up with things to do on I know, the cuff? It's a lot like, of pressure. It is a lot of pressure. Worse for you. Yeah, I've been true. in that seat too. This is easy. I got a, notes and you're just waiting for whatever I throw at you. Um, speaking of which, so you talked in the interview we did about a road trip you took. You spent about 18 months on the road when you, what, 2004 to 2005 I have. So yeah. you would have been what age then? Pretty young. Uh, probably 26-ish, something like that. And so can you take me through kind of what you did and where you were? I mean, this was a climbing trip, right? Yeah. So the reason it happened is because um, I did ROTC to get through college, to mm-hmm. pay for my college. Um, and so that put me in the Air Force after I graduated. So I had a basically to pay the government back for them paying for my college, I had to do four years in the air force. So when that time was up, you're basically, you know, you can stay in the air force, um, assuming you haven't been kicked out for some reason. Uh, but I elected to separate. Um, so that gave me a window of opportunity to, you know, live my best life or whatever. So so basically, so, you know, when that was approaching, I knew that I was going to do that. I was going to dirtbag for a while. So I, you know, made preparations and, um, so that was why the, you know, the timing of it and, you know, what led to that. Um, but we, I basically, um, I say we, cause Kate joined me. Um, she was also in the air force. That's where we met. She did the oh, same okay. thing, ROTC to pay for college. Um, so I was a year ahead of her, so she couldn't get out at the same time I did. So for, at first I was by myself and I basically, you know, got an Astro van, built a bed in it. Um, and mostly road trip around the U S I first went to Smith rock and I spent a couple months there, um, until it got too hot. And then 
let's see, after that, Yosemite, that's what we did. Mike and I did Free Rider. Mm-hmm. Um, then um, Kate joined me, I think, at that summer. And we drove across country. She's from Connecticut. So we went out there to visit her family. And I'd never been to the Northeast. You're really from Oregon, right? You're from Yeah, I'm from Corvallis, Oregon. right? Yeah, I'm from Corvallis, Oregon. Yep. So um, I'd never really been, I'd flown to the East Coast a few times, obviously for work and whatnot. But as far as like climbing, I really hadn't been out there. So we went to the Gunks. We went to like Cathedral Ledge, um, Conway, a bunch of these um, kind of classic um, Northeastern climbing areas, Rumney, um, even did some trap rock climbing in Connecticut, um, New River Gorge, Red River Gorge, um, things like that. And then we went to Canada, did some um, some mountains in Canada. Then in um, the fall, the following fall, we went to Australia. We um, that was really cool. We bought a van in Australia and we lived there for three months. Um, we also went to New Zealand for a couple of weeks in there. Um, mostly sport climbing all around Australia, but I mean, Australia is not as um, clear cut as like this is sport and that's trad. It's there's a lot of like, right, right. you know, bolted face climbing where you need to bring gear and things like that. Or there's three bolts in a hundred feet or right. something like that. And it's considered a sport climb, but you know, there's no anchors or, you know, <laughs> whatever. So it's definitely, at least that's how it was in those days. I don't and think it's changed a whole lot. Yeah. Actually. They have these things called carrot bolts where it's just like a machine yeah. bolt, like glued into the rock and you have to bring your own hanger for it and stuff. So yeah, that was awesome. And, um, the highlight of that was doing the totem pole in Tasmania, which is this freestanding tower that's like over the ocean. Um, so then after that, um, came back to the U S um, this, the, this 2004 tsunami happened mm. or maybe it was 2005, whatever. It was in, yeah, I yeah, think it was 2004, 2004 like yeah. right in December, so I think. Kate had already made plans to go to Thailand and like the, the tsunami happened like right after she got there. Mm. So, um, she did some volunteer work there and I went out and joined her. I can't say that I did any volunteer work, but we went climbing in Thailand and, um, scuba diving and whatnot. Um, after that, I went back to Smith, spent another season at Smith. Um, I think we went to Yosemite again and then, um, I went back to work after that. So that's pretty much. Yeah. And I have this quote from you from the interview and I'll just read it verbatim. It said, I'm really grateful for that because it allowed me to experience that life and realize that while certainly rewarding in many ways, I could never be fully satisfied with that life in the long run. Was it just- That's very eloquent. I'm sure I didn't write it that way the first draft. (laughs) Probably. These are your words. Probably revised it a couple of times to get it to sound that good. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And and, uh, again, like I read your your blog posts and- um, I relate to your sentiments about, you know, you you did the dirtbag thing when you mm-hmm. first put your job and you're like, yep. I think it's a, in a lot of ways, it's just tied to your age, right? And like how much stability you want, you know, I mean, it's, it's well-documented medically or scientifically that, you know, you, your dopamine response changes throughout your life cycle. Mm-hmm. And, you know, young people can just put up with more crap, I think. And as you get older, your tolerance for Dude, like seriously. for like rocky sleeping positions and whatever. Like I needed a good night's sleep. How many days I you'll go without a shower. Yeah, yeah, right. Just simple things like not having running water, not being yeah. able to wash my hands. Like I'm I'm kind of nuts about wanting to wash my hands. And um, you know, my kids love to go camping and I I'll go, but I don't really like it. <laughs> so it's like, to me, like camping is a means to an end. Like I do it because I need to climb this mountain. And in order to do that, I'm required to camp because I can't hike it in one day. If I could do it in one day, I would, believe me, I'd really rather do like a 36 hour, you know, car to car, get it done, not have to bring a sleeping bag type of deal. I'm not into like voluntarily camping for fun. It's just not, 
It's funny. I mean, because I used to be like super outdoorsy, like yeah. so proud of how many days I could go without a shower. And then when I got into sport climbing and like wanting to feel fit and recovered, yeah, my desire to be like uncomfortable and cold and yeah. God just plummeted. And maybe that's also in tandem with me getting older because I didn't. I didn't do the dirt bag thing, quote unquote. I mean, I had an A-frame camper. It was pretty comfy. Yeah. But I didn't do it till I was 36, 35, yeah. whatever. And so, yeah, by that time, like, man, the ship kind of sailed on me wanting to be like yeah. on I, the I road. Think I've, I'm sure there's people out there who started doing that later in life. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there are. But it seems like it'd be much easier if you always did that and just never knew anything else. Right. But. I really like having a house. I really like having a piece of land and, yep. you know, seeing the trees grow, you know, yeah. over the years and seeing how things change and being like rooted in a place. And I think I just, that, that like nomad lifestyle is just really not for me. And mm. I admire the people who can do it. I, um, do I, I don't think, you know, I think they're maybe the weekend warriors look at that and say like, Oh, that's the easy way. I don't really think it's easy. I, you know, I think, it's easier having a house and, you know, a place where you can take a shower and a home base and all that. So. Yeah. I mean, there's something to be said about being out there and honing your skills, but at this point, I mean, your skills are pretty well dialed in. I mean, you've been climbing a long time, so you probably benefit by just being rested and getting out there and just. I hope so. I I do wonder if, if like my skills, I think that was definitely true for a while. I felt like, especially like when I dirtbagged, my ability definitely went through the roof and not numbers wise. Like, I mean, the, when I started dirtbagging, my hardest send was 13B, and at the end, it was 13C. So it's not like mm, I got okay. it much better on paper, but I got way more confident, like yeah. leading, being on a sharp on the sharp end. You know, I felt like my footwork was super dialed in, yeah. all these little things that, you know, you can't really quantify, but I could definitely feel the difference. And I felt like I coasted on that for like a good 10 years, yep. you know. But now, I don't know. Now I, now I worry that I don't climb enough and that, you know, I am getting pretty rusty. And at this point, you know, I'm pretty much – a red point climber, you know, I thought, you know, especially my dirtbagging days, my onsite level was not that far behind, you know, maybe two or three letter grades below my red point level. Now it's, I don't know, six or seven letter <laughs> grades below, you know, it's like, I'm definitely a red point climber now. And, it, and I think you can get away with, um, not being that honed if you're just doing the same route over True. and over again, right. You can just learn the moves for that one route and you don't need to have this huge arsenal of of movement options if you only if you know you only need to use these 20 moves or whatever you know it takes to get through the crux of your project yeah i mean so what does it look like for you these days do you take many climbing trips or you just kind of singularly i mean you've had like a long-standing project in clear creek right you're still working on that yeah sadly (laughs) (laughs) i mean it won't be very sad if you do it pathetically yeah um yeah so i mean i don't i i would I would love to do more trips that, you know, again, it kind of go, goes back to the kids thing. Right. Um, my kids aren't really climbers. Like they, they definitely climb, but they're mm-hmm. not, it's not their life. It's not what they're right. most passionate about. So, um, we do trips. Um, you know, we went to Smith rock for a couple of weeks at the beginning of the summer. It was super fun. Um, and the kids climbed quite a bit, but at the same time, it's like, they have a certain amount of tolerance for it before they're like, okay, like how many days are we going to go back to the same crowd, <laughs> right. go to the same spot? And the last time they, I really drug my kids through that was shadow boxing. And that was, mm. you know, I finished that in 2016. So five years ago and they were, you know, my son was five, my daughter was three. So they don't, they remember it as like, Oh, with this fun time, we got to stay in a hotel or whatever. They don't remember <laughs> the drudgery of like going to the exact same spot every single weekend and, you know, sitting under the same cliff. And, and all that. But if I 
you know, if I tried to do that now, they would have very little tolerance. What was, what was that process like? I remember asking you at the time, like, do you, cause that was your hardest red point still is right. In yeah. terms of like grade wise. And I remember asking you, like, did you think that made you a better climber? And you kind of had like a mixed response on that. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't really believe that just climbing the same thing over and over again makes you a better climber. <laughs> you know? I think the best way to get better is like, you know, kind of the Jonathan Segrist life of, you know, travel around, mm-hmm. climb tons of different stuff, send things, send lots of things, but send them pretty quick. So you're mm-hmm. getting exposed to different styles, different, you know, steepness, different hold right. types, different movements, all that. Like that's, that's the way to do it for sure. I think, you know, and that's when I, when I improved the most as a climber, I was doing that. Like I rarely had a project that would last more than four days, you know? So like during a season, you might send 10 routes or something. And now it's like, I might send one route in 10 seasons. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, I've totally gone the opposite direction. Yeah. I feel like you're known as like the projector now. Yeah, I know. And it's like, not ever, ever, it was never anything I aspired to. It was always something I kind of looked down on. It's like, you know, I, I was proud of being the sort of person who could on-site pretty close to my limit, or I could go do a hard trad climb that was, you know, a one or two letter grades below my red point, uh-huh. you know, my sport red point limit. Um, and now I just feel like I'm, I'm not really, I'm not really a climber in that sense. I'm not an all arounder. I'm like, I'm just someone who works one route over and over again. <laughs> Maybe I'll send it. And Do you think that's because of the family dynamic? It's just the convenience. That's of a it? big part of it. I yeah. mean, if this project were not in Clear Creek, I wouldn't still be working it. Okay, it's it's right. literally a 35 minute drive from my house. Um, it suits me really well. It's easy to find partners for, relatively speaking. Yeah, it's a popular I wall. I don't right. have to take my kids when I go. Right. Right? They've never been there, you know. Yeah, I wouldn't um, bring them up there. <laughs> although, actually, I I did take my son up there, but just to go rappelling, like. We, we like yep. hiked up to the top of the wall, of the nineties repelled down it. Um, but yeah, I've never taken them climbing there. So that's the biggest thing. It's like, I, it's something I can do with, you know, without impacting my day job of being a dad. Do you still warm up at home and go straight there and get on? That's what I've been doing. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm not sure if that's the best thing, but that's what I've been doing. Cause again, it's just like, that's one less hour that I'm not at home or right. whatever. You right. Know. I mean, convenient for the family life, but maybe not, yeah, the time on the rock. Yeah, I'm not sure stuff. it's good for that. Yeah. And that's where, you know, there was a point where, you know, when I first started working this project where I was still climbing outside a lot. And so I don't feel like I need, I need it all that much, you know, mm-hmm. on the rock, you know, extra on the rock time. And I could kind of get away with that. But now it's, it's getting to the point where like, that's the only thing I climb for like six months of the year. So <laughs> it probably would be good if I, you know, did some extra warmups, but I don't know. Would it be worth it if I was just doing the same warm up over and over again? I don't know if that would yeah, be. Yeah, I mean, it's better. kind of the same. Yeah, so, unless you had like a good warm up circuit where you could mix it up and do like 10 different routes or something. Yeah, I mean, the value of warming up at home is I can get it super dialed as yeah. far as like what boulder problems I do, what movements I do, how pumped I get before I start climbing and that sort of thing. Are you close? Uh, well, it's hard to say now. I mean, I haven't been on it since March. Okay, right. So right. This yeah, is the it's just coming into the like season. I'll start. I'm I'm finishing up finishing up my hangboard phase right now, so I'll get back on it in about a month or so. Okay. Um, but even then, you know, if you look at it as like my last climbing day was last week, it's a great question. Am I getting close? I wish I knew the answer. I don't feel like it. Um, the, I've the biggest problem has been I've been injured more than I've been healthy in the last over the last three years, I and it's that. tended to be that the periods in which I'm healthy has been the summer. So I've been, you know, getting in really good shape and on paper, I'm as good as ever. Um, but I always seem to get injured, you know, right as I'm, you know, getting dug into the project. So that's been really frustrating. Do you think that's a result of like the monotonous movement style or is it just age? I mean, is like the injury result of like certain moves on? Good question. Yeah. I think I, I, 
I guess I would put my money on mostly on age. And I don't know, I'm kind of an injury prone sort of person mm. in the sense that I'm, um, everything I do is kind of like intense, <laughs> you know, over the top <laughs> type of, yeah, I, I play soccer, you know, I scrimmage with my kids' soccer teams and, you know, I'm playing with 10 year olds and I get hurt, you know, everyone else is fine, but I get hurt. I twist my ankle or, you know, whatever. You just reminded me of a great story. Do you remember in St. George a few years ago when we randomly ran into you? Oh yeah. Yeah. You, sure. So you were there with your family and we were staying at this, what was that? Sports, Sports village. village yeah. yeah. It's this kind of like it's zone for vacation rentals. And I was there with two of my friends. We're like, let's go get a pickup basketball game going. And we were just going to like play horse, like on a rest day. And then you showed up out of nowhere. And, and then this like 10 year old kid who was really psyched came in and we had this super heated, like three on three basketball game. Yeah. It was the worst rest day ever. <laughs> my skin was wrecked. I was like sweaty. It was like 80 degrees in the sun and we were just like going hard. Yeah. And I just, I still tell that story. It was so hilarious. It was supposed to be a rest day and I was just wrecked from this like superheated like basketball game with you, my two friends, a 10 year old kid just in the middle of the sun. So. Yeah, no, And that's how like, that's kind of my mentality where like, I don't do anything half speed. So <laughs> I either need to do nothing or if I do it, I'm expect to be injured at the end or go way too hard or whatever. I'm the same way. Well, now, now that I'm in St. George, people are like, oh, you should really get into mountain biking because it's like this. Oh, I would so hurt myself doing that. Exactly. And I'm like, I got my bike kind of tuned up. It had been in like my garage for like 10 years. And I kind of got on these trails, like doing some like five, six mountain biking, having fun, but I could already feel myself like wanting to get on harder and harder things. And I'm like, this is a very slippery slope for me. Yeah, totally. And like, so like last spring, um, my spring season on my project was basically three days because after that third day, I went to a soccer scrimmage with my son's team. I fell and I like hyperextended my wrist. And oh I was like goodness. out of action for a month. And by the time, and I, I was like no climbing for a month. So then it was like, I'm starting from square one, you know, mm. trying to get back into shape. And by then the route's out of condition. And like, I spent a lot of time thinking, you know, 10 years ago, me would never get involved in a soccer game on a rest day. So I'd be like, no, that might impact my climbing. Right. And I've made a conscious decision to spend time with my kids. And those are some of the funnest times I have now is, you know, you. my son's getting into ultimate Frisbee as well, which is something I played a ton of when I was in high school. And, you know, we play a pickup game like once a week at his school and I super love it. It's super fun. It's way more fun than I have climbing. <laughs> no offense to, to any climbers out there. <laughs> so, no, I mean, it's so like, Am I going to give that up during the short window of time that I, I can have those experiences so that I can like go back to my project and get another, you know, it's like, you know, I, I just, I don't care that, you know, as much as I used to. Hmm. That's the bottom line. So the perspective has changed. And, yeah. And do you think that's because you're not working and you have this new time or is that just something you think would have happened? No, that would have happened anyway. It's yeah. more about yeah. just having kids and, um, you know, wanting to get the most out of that experience. And, um, you know, I, I still, and it's not that I don't care about my project or climbing or whatever. It's just that it's not the number one thing anymore. And yeah. I think, you know, I'm optimistic that I can still do the project without being a hundred percent invested in it. But if, if you told me you could do the project, you just have to ignore your family for a year. I'd be like, no, I'm not going to miss out on a year with my family just to climb a rock. That doesn't make any sense. Do you think you walked that line in the past? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, I, you know, never to, never to the point that I was ignoring my family. It was just that I would drag them along, right. you know, kicking and screaming and they would just have to deal with it. You know, yeah. I was the boss and they would just do it. And that's kind of how shadow boxing was. And they were, they were good sports about it. But I know my wife didn't want to spend her whole weekend hanging out in like Silt, Colorado. <laughs> <laughs> you know, no offense to the fine residents of Silt. 
yeah. <laughs> at the picnic table across from the project wall. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's, you know, like they, they were really supportive and I really appreciate that, but I could tell they didn't want to be there. So how many weekends were you there? Um, it took me a total of like, I want to say like 23 days. So, mm. um, you know, two days a weekend. Yeah, so that's, that's, it's a lot of, it was over a f- two, two seasons. I want to say it was three seasons, three but the third season I sent it the second yep. weekend. So okay. it was really, you know, two seasons of going out, you know, six or six or seven weekends straight of going to rifle. And uh, what, what was it like having like a project at that limit, like so far away from home? Um, and why did you pick that one? I get because <laughs> that was the closest one. Really? I mean, okay. literally. Um, oh, you I, told me, didn't you have a conversation? Yeah, with, and you yeah. can read about this on my blog if you want yeah. to. Um, but yeah, I had a long conversation with Jonathan about um, you know what would be a good nine A for me, and you know I'd kind of done research on. And this is Jonathan Secret. Yeah, right? the yep. ones because he's he's done them all. Like he's sure. the one to ask. Um, and I had kind of like evaluated different ones. And at the end of the day, I, I kind of felt like shadow boxing was probably the worst option for me, except it was the closest, you know, mm-hmm. like style wise, I hate rifle rifles always kick <laughs> my butt. Um, it isn't that steep by rifle standard. Like you right. think rifle, you think like 45 degree overhanging blocks. It's not like that. It, it's relatively it's more fingery, which would be your style. Fingery, right? yeah. yeah. But the crux is like burly underclinging, which okay. is not my strong suit. Um, but yeah, I mean, I thought like, kryptonite would have been better that's at the fortress of solitude but it's like literally a one hour uphill approach i'm like i'm not going to do that with kids and people tend to climb there in the winter so it just didn't yeah logistically yeah yeah. it just seemed like shadow boxing was logistically the only feasible option like the next best best option would be like something at the fins in idaho or something Mm -hmm. where you're looking at like 12 hour drives and four-wheel drive and you know that's not going to happen with the family so if you do this thing in clear creek do you think this will be harder it's definitely harder. Okay. There's no question. Um, and there's a couple of there's a couple of link ups that I've like done that I even I think the link ups are harder than shadow boxing. Really? So those I've if if I never send the project, at least I've got the link ups in the bag where I could say like I did something. I did, <laughs> did these two years totally ago. Waste my time. Yeah. No, that's cool. So, so that's good. But no, I, I I'm kind of excited to talk about the project. And normally I, I hate the idea of talking about something I haven't done yet. I was Yeah, I didn't know this, if you wanted to even talk about th- this it. This era like, of like, w- you know, I was raised in the 80s where like the worst thing you could be was this thing called a poser. Mm-hmm. And now that that term has no meaning anymore because now you're, you know, the world is all about taking a photo of yourself, pretending to do something you don't actually do, <laughs> posting it on Instagram and getting a bunch of likes. But like that was completely the antithesis of our childhood, which was yeah. you never, you didn't wear a football shirt unless you played football. <laughs> Or people would make fun of you for yeah. being a poser or whatever. Right. You didn't wear a Metallica t-shirt unless you'd been to a Metallica concert or else you weren't a real fan or whatever. That's right. So um, I was just raised with this mentality. You don't say you're going to do something unless you've already done it. So, I mean, all, all the climbing, a lot of the big climbing stuff I did, I would never tell anyone what I was going to do. I would just be like, oh, I just climbed Denali, you know, and I tried to keep it a secret because I didn't want... I didn't want to be criticized for spraying about something that I hadn't done yet. I, I and, struggle with that too. And kind of like the, the, the recent Yosemite stuff has totally changed that mentality. I think that was a big thing among climbers longer than it was for the rest of society. It just, you know, just the word spray, like sprays, you know, talking mm-hmm. about something you haven't done yet. And then like all the, you know, live streaming of a sense of El Cap and whatnot has kind of changed. Oh, you that. mean like Don Wall kind of stuff? Well, I was going to yeah. name names, but. Well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> but yeah Don't but, worry, they're not listening. I mean, it's. Yeah, but yeah. Yeah, that, that, that was a very big media event, like all the way through. Yeah, it. and yeah. that totally changed the outlook on like, oh, now you're supposed to talk about stuff you haven't done yet. Right. And, and um, so that's, I've never been comfortable with that. 
But you know, I what I do find interesting is uh, I read a lot of like climber biographies, and you know, one of my favorite books is Jerry Moffat's book Revelations. And that's I, a great one. What I notice is like all these books end the same way. They always have a chapter that's about the route that they never did, the route that like ended their climbing career, the route that like sucked all the joy out of the sport for the for the author. And I just know, like I'm on this route right now. I'm like going through this process. And I'm like, how long can I hang on? Can I like stubbornly keep working the same route without any hope of, of like ever sending it? So yeah, I find that very interesting. <laughs> if this route were like 30 minutes further away, I don't think I'd be working it anymore, but it is like literally the most convenient piece of rock that I could be climbing. So that keeps me, that keeps me coming back. Do you still do any development? Cause this is a route you bolted, right? It is route I bolted. Um, and you've done a ton of bolting in the front range. Yeah. And I kind of stopped because, so the answer, the short answer is no. Um, it's not a permanent thing. My garage is full of bolts. Um, but I kind of injured myself <laughs> bolting and it was, I had a day like, Generally, you know, I have two batteries for my drill and I can generally get like 30 to 40 bolts out of a day. And then a couple times I would bolt until my batteries ran dry. And then I would go back to the car. I have an inverter and I would charge my batteries and then go back and bolt again. And I did that once um, at Beaverbrook, actually, which is a place uh, we were going to climb today. Um, and I, I did like 65 bolts that day or something. <clears throat> and afterwards, I just had like this perma pump mm. sensation in my left arm and that kind of like it led to like, I, I, I'm pretty sure it led to a muscle tear in my forearm a few months later. And basically it cost me like a year and a half. I remember this. Climbing. Yeah. This was like three years so, ago. You yeah. Were kind that of was like, in 2018 yep. is, is when that happened. So that was the last time I bolted something was the summer of 2018. Really? Okay. And it took me you know, like a year and a half to get over that. And so since then it's just been like, um, I've got to really want it <laughs> you yeah. know, to bolt it, uh, to bolt something if I'm going to risk, you know, hurting myself for it. So where did you ever find the time to do all that? I was always amazed at how prolific you were considering you had a job, you had kids, you obviously had these projects and other climbing ambitions. Yeah. And the, the answer is, um, it's a good question, mostly because of the, the periodized style of training I do yeah. that I have long periods where I'm not climbing, right? Okay. Like I haven't climbed today is, is September 30th. And my last day on the rock was like in early August. Okay. So I've like for six plus weeks, I haven't climbed. So this would have been a great window. And if that, you know, three years ago, my kids weren't this involved in soccer. So I had, you know, um, you know, a day that I would have been normally going cragging, I would just go bolt or whatever. Gotcha. And I'm, you know, like I said, most people, you know, I don't know what most people do, but I've, I've been done route development with people who, you know, they put in five bolts in a day and that's like a big day for them right. or like put in one route and that's a big day, but I don't bolt that way. I'm yeah, like, 40 I need bolts, to get as many lot. bolts as I can in. Um, so in one day or in a couple of days, I could bolt, you know, a crag's worth of route. So I would try to do my bolting in the off season and then not tell anybody cause I'm, you know, super paranoid about people snaking my FAs. Well, I mean, that's <laughs> Colorado culture for sure. There's a lot of people gunning for new routes for yeah, sure, or yeah. quiet places. Yeah. So that's how I would do it. Basically. I take advantage of the off season. It's, it's pretty rare that I would bolt during a time when I'm also climbing. Okay. And you're out there alone. Like you're not out there with a crew of people bolting. No, yeah. I always like doing it solo for yeah. whatever reason. I mean, I don't know. I feel like it's hard enough to find someone who wants to come out to belay on a route that's already bolted. Yeah. <laughs> Dragging them out there to like, hey, you want to scrub boss <laughs> with me? And <laughs> well, some people are into that, but most people are not. I've, yeah, I've come yeah. into the same problem. I think it's hard enough finding people who will like, you know, belay me so I can actually send the projects. And so why did you, where, where did the streak to do all this bolting come from? Do you think, I mean, I think you wrote about this in the interview. I think you said it was like 
50% expiration, 25% like legacy, and 25% okay. I think solid just to get away from the crowds. Yeah, that, that sounds like a good breakdown. Maybe the percentages <laughs> are a little off. Maybe it's more like 50% legacy and yeah. 49% solitude, yeah. something like that. <laughs> but, but yeah, no, uh, no, I definitely like to explore. Um, I think, you know, it's interesting because I think we're running out of FAs and, um, to be a little controversial, the access fund isn't really interested in preserving that opportunity anymore. They're about let's preserve the climbing we already have access to. Mm. And if bolting new routes becomes a thing of the past, I think they're okay with that. Mm. So, and that's based on my experience working closely with them over the Jefferson County bolt ban. Right, right, right. Um, so I, I think we're going to get to a point you know, in our lifetime for sure, where there's just like first descents are not a thing really anymore, unless you're like an alpine climber going to Antarctica or something like that. Do you think fewer people are doing it or? No, I think okay. if anything more are doing it, but that's yeah. just, that's just speeding up the inevitable, which is we're going to run out of rock that's where right. it's legal or you can get away with it, you know? And have you seen restrictions? Like, like you're talking about the Jeffco thing. I mean, and, and folks listen from all over, this is Jefferson County, Colorado, which had, I guess, I don't know how we phrase it. Yeah, some bolting restrictions, right? And do you think that more of a norm coming forward? It's completely a norm, and that's yeah. what the access fund is pushing for. Okay. And that's where I'm, you know, being controversial. Um, you know, they're coming to the bargaining table presenting an FHRC, you know, fixed hardware review committee, saying that's their opening position. They're not even asking for let's preserve the the status quo. They're going to the mm -hmm. negotiating table saying, you know, and I understand their their point of view is we want to appear reasonable. There aren't any other user groups that are allowed to like cut their own trails or, you know, True. build their own cabins or whatever on public land. And we're building our own infrastructure when we're putting bolts in, in the True. rock. True. So they're, they're trying to appear reasonable. So they're saying like, we understand that, you know, just any Yahoo being able to put bolts wherever they want is probably not a, a sane, you know, negotiation position. So we're going to come with this, what we think is a compromise, which is a fixed hardware review committee. But I think that's, you know... There, there have been some success stories with that. I mean, the, if you look at the Flatirons, there's, there's been a mm -hmm. ton of new yep. development with, a, with an FHRC. But if you look at the Jeffco version, it's completely shut down route development in Jefferson County. And they have not approved, to my knowledge, a single new crag since the FHRC came into a place. And they'll allow, you know, you can you can squeeze a new route in on the wall in the 90s or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. where there's already a ton of routes squeezed in. But they're not going to let you develop a new crag. That's just, you know. It's and that's the table for them. That's under the the kind of the umbrella of what cultural and natural resource kind of protection and those. Sort yeah, of things. I mean it, they um, their philosophies that they have. Um, they did this survey twenty years ago of the citizens of Jefferson County, and the survey showed that people care fifty percent about resource protection or like you know uh, conservation and fifty percent about recreation. So mm. they're trying to make, strike that balance um, between the two resource conservation and recreation and kind of where they've landed as far as climbing goes. I think they look at climbing as a disposable recreation mm -hmm. type of recreation where the recreation they're concerned about providing is hiking and mountain biking. And they don't really, they the see very big user. Groups. Yeah, yeah, obviously. And they see climbing as like a fringe thing. That's just a nuisance. And if they could make it go away, they certainly would. Hmm. I think so. There's a lot of climbers now. Yeah, and you know, people on who work for Jeffco claim to be climbers, but they don't ever go climbing, and you know, they don't seem interested in preserving climbing or making it a priority for the county. So, mm. um, yeah, it is what it is.
I'm sounding like a bitter old man. Now. <laughs> I, I wanted to avoid ever becoming that, but. Well, you said your you natural get, tendencies. You got me. I know you got me going. So <laughs> I, I think it's okay. I, I mean, I don't think there were a ton of gems in Jefferson County waiting to be bolted. I think most yeah. of the good stuff's been done. That's so probably fair. It, yeah. It's all, it's fine, you know, but yeah, I mean, my larger point is I think this, like this thing of doing first ascents. I mean, when I came up through the sport, the people, the names you knew, the people you, you held in esteem were people who were doing first ascents. True. So that's how you made a name for yourself as a climber. It mm-hmm. wasn't like, oh, so-and-so did the fourth ascent or whatever. You know, it's like, who did the first ascent? That's the person who, you know, got the credit. And I think that that thing, that's going to end pretty soon, or it's it's going to diminish just because there aren't first going to be first ascents available to do other than link-ups of existing things mm-hmm. or, or yeah. whatever. So that you're going to have to find another way for top climbers to make a name for themselves because first ascents are not going to be an option. Well, okay. I guess that's where the Olympics comes in. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to switch gears totally completely and ask if you're comfortable with it, some of the financial stuff. Sure. Um, kind of give me the history on what made you want to go down this path of potentially, quote unquote, retiring early. You know, neither you nor I really like that term, but what made you want to go to this point of financial independence? We'll call it that. Uh, I just, you know, don't particularly like work. <laughs> I guess I'm kind of lazy. Um, is it that you don't like work or you didn't like the structure of like a corporate kind of, I mean, you didn't work in like a private sector corporate world, but I think I'm pretty like anti-authoritarian and I'm, I'm super like (laughs) anti-fascist. I mean, I I don't wear like a, I'm not like an Antifa. (laughs) I don't wear a mask and go to, you know, you know, sure. Go to demonstrations or or what have you. But I, I just, you know, um, I just don't like people telling me what to do. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I think I can resonate you with maybe that. Heard, yeah. heard some of that sentiment when we were talking about the bolting story. <laughs> but um, I don't like committees. I don't like um forms. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> all that kind of thing. So yeah. Um And you, you work for a very bureaucratic kind sure, of Sure. Yeah. I, mean, I work for the federal government, for the right. Department of Defense. It's very bureaucratic. It's very authoritarian. It's very like so that chain of command, rank yeah. structure, all that. So um yeah, it, it took a lot of patience for me to get through all that. And um, it's funny. I mean, I'm good at it. I was a Boy Scout. I was an Eagle Scout. I'm good at like checking boxes and filling out forms. And, you know, I can do that with the best of them. But that doesn't mean I like it or I find it like meaningful or a useful way to spend my time. Um, so I just always thought like um, if I could not do it, I would certainly not do it. You know, it's... Uh, and and so okay well then why didn't you just like quit that job and go I don't know that's a really work, good work on a farm or something probably because I'm a coward <laughs> like I think um, you know I some people have a very entrepreneurial spirit mm, and yeah. you know we were we mentioned my our friend Bor he's very much like that and he you know he has new ideas all the time and I really admire he that, does that yeah. willingness to like put yourself out there and take a risk and I think. I'm just very risk averse in that sense. And it's like, I'm getting a steady paycheck. The work is easy. Like, I know I can do it. If I quit my job and I go work somewhere else, it might be harder. I might not succeed. Um, so I, I think that that's the biggest thing. It's just like fear of the situation being worse. Somewhere, you know, instead of the, the grass is greener, what if the grass is not greener? What if the grass is like browner on the other side of the fence? So, People have been peeing on it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I was like, I know I can tolerate this, so I'll just keep doing this until that, yeah. that's fascinating. I totally relate. And I think there's, that's why I like to interview a lot of different people because I think there's a lot of similarities where there's a whole lot of us who don't like 
having bosses, don't like the rigid bureaucratic kind of, you know, either corporate or government structure, but also, um, and then there's the other, there's the other folks who will gladly go and start a business and take a lot of risk and ha- and find freedom that way. Like I talked to Luke Mihal, who started the climbing mm-hmm. scene, you know, no blueprint for success there at all, but he's made it work. Whereas someone like you or I are like, uh, you know, it pays pretty good and it's a good, whatever, yeah, you know, totally. like, but I, I think in our, we did have the advantage of you've got the steady paycheck, you've got some predictability and you can start kind of turning some dials to maybe start saving money and things like that. Yeah. Which maybe an entrepreneur doesn't cause they may have uh, diffuse income streams kind of come and go up and down, you know, pros and cons. Yeah. Well, it definitely seemed more daunting to me. Whereas like, you know, the corporate structure, it's super easy to like set up 401k yeah. distributions right. and you right. know, all that kind of thing. And, um, it's, you know, it takes very little effort. Whereas I always thought, um, if I, you know, you try to do it on your own or whatever, you know, just you're carrying all that risk. Yep. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, sometimes I look back and think, you know, maybe I should have done this or I should have done that. And, and then, it, you know, at some point, once you can kind of see the finish line, you're like, oh, I'm six years away. It's like, it doesn't make sense to start over now. And, yep. um, so that that carried me through the last third, third or you know, third or so of my career. I agree. Yeah. I had one one of the worst jobs of my life the last two years before I quit. And it was terrible. It was a startup kind of deal and it was just workaholic awfulness. Okay. But I was like, ah, the finish line. And then yeah. it became actually my best job. Management changed, everything. It was great. Okay. But it kind of changed overnight. But anyway, um, so mechanically, what did you guys do? I mean, because you said in the interview, Kate, your wife, and I want to give her some credit, before, but at some point because yeah. she no, she was you, definitely the brains behind the yeah. It let's seems save like money thing, right? <laughs> How did she come to all this stuff? Like, I think she, she read some, books, like yeah. she read books like The Millionaire Next Door okay. and, and things like that when she was really young. Um, I I mean, like in college or right after college. Okay. So as soon as I met her, I met her right. At, you know, her first job out of college was in the air force, you know, with me. And at that point she was already like, she knew, you know, the basic framework of saving and spending less than you make and, um, you know, putting away money. And it took me a longer to come along to kind of come around to it. But, um, I mean, not that long, I guess like my four years in the air force after college, I basically, you know, I was saving, but basically like an idiot, I was just like, accumulating money in my checking account. I didn't, I wasn't really putting anything away. I didn't have a IRA or anything mm-hmm. like that. Um, the way the military works is you don't really have a 401k. There is an option for it, but it's not like part of the standard, um, you know, kind of the track is like, you're going to work to retirement. And then when you retire, you get a pension. So right. people don't really think in terms of like putting away money they, that you do in the corporate world. So anyway, I was just like saving up money in my checking account, like a bozo. <laughs> Which is pretty common. Yeah. And, I then, mean, and I was saving it for my dirt bag. It wasn't like, because I'm going to retire off of this money. It was like, I need enough cash in my checking account so that I can like buy gas for a year. Which I think climbers will find super relatable. Yeah, to this totally. Day. So yeah. like I had, you know, I had enough. I had a good margin and I felt like I had enough that I could like last for at least a year and- so that's what I did. And I, I had way more than that. It turned out I didn't spend as much money as I had budgeted for. And I had my leftover at the end and I could have kept going. Um, but yeah, I just got to a point where I was like, you know, I, I've done this enough. Like there's diminishing returns with anything, right? I felt like I'd done it enough that I got the experience and I could keep going, but it wasn't going to be, you know, better than it had been. And I didn't mm-hmm. want to be out of the working world for so long that I would, you know, kind of lose my chops or, right, right. or whatever. So 
And then as soon as I started, you know, as soon as I got like a real job again, at that point, I was already won over to the concept of saving money. And, you know, I immediately set up a 401k. Uh, or it's not a 401k because I was still government. So it's like 403CB or something like 403B, that. 403B, yeah. 403B. Yep. Um, so I set up all that stuff right away and maxed out my contributions. And from that point, we were pretty much, you know, on our way. And then, you know, at some point we, I think Kate already had a brokerage account at that point. So we started putting money, you know, whatever extra money we had. Like after tax. Yeah, we go into the yeah. after tax brokerage account. And did you guys always live like pretty frugal? I mean, you, yeah. I mean, we're sitting in your house now. It's not like some shack on the hill. I mean, you guys <laughs> live a pretty good life up here, but it's all relative. Yeah, you know? it's all and relative. It's like, yeah. what, what I consider frugal, I have friends, you know, I was talking about my high school buddies who you know, I was telling a story that you know, I was in Oregon. I was telling my buddy a story about how, you know, I needed to get gas in this place. You know, the gas is only 10 cents a gallon more than, than it was in town. So I got gas. And he's like, really? You think that's not a lot of money? Because I think that's crazy. You spent 10 cents a gallon more than you had to. And I'm just like, oh, well, it's all relative. I think yeah. I'm really frugal. But from his perspective, like I just wasted, a, you know, $3 on sure. gas. It's you know? definitely a spectrum. Yep. So, yeah, I mean, I, I look at our frugality through the lens of like the people I worked with in our, you know, relatively corporate environment. And literally like half the people I work with are driving a BMW or a Mercedes mm. or an Audi. And for what? Like, who are they trying to impress? Like, you know, they, they live in Highlands Ranch. They got three car garage and, you know, 4,000 square foot house, four bathrooms that they have to clean. And I just don't, I, that, I, that never made any sense to me. Like, why would you want to have all this extra stuff you have to maintain? It, I just never, under, the idea of like spending a bunch of money on a car too, is, that's something I got from my dad. He was always really you know, frugal and thrifty, especially around cars and things like that. But it just, you know, for me and Kate, it just both, you know, it, it came really naturally to just, you know, don't throw money away hmm. for no reason. So you know, even, you know, we were talking about my guitar collection, like all my guitars are used, you know, they I got, get them all cheap. Um, I don't go in for like big ticket items. Hmm. My amp is used, you know, I could afford to go buy a new amp, but I got a used one because it would bother me to just waste the money. If I know I could get one that's just as good that's used. Yeah, let's talk about that actually, because you surprised me when you told me you'd gotten into music. I kind of thought I saw you as like this, yeah, super analytical engineer. Like I didn't see like the what would that be, right brain kind of yeah. musical side. But you were like, oh man, I've gotten all into this during the lockdowns. And I'm like, really? And we're sitting here. I'm like staring at Marshall amps. There's guitars on the wall. There's a, what? Harmon? What? There's a oh, <laughs> tambourine. Yeah, tambourine, ukulele. Ukulele. Yeah, I mean, there's all I kinds do have of some stuff in here. Around yeah, here piano. Yeah. Where did the, has this always been there? So, I mean, I started playing guitar in college and, um, I, you know, I was really into it in my college years, much more so than climbing. I, mean, I was barely a climber in college. I had like some gear, but I hardly ever climbed. Um, and then right after college, very soon, you know, within like seven or eight months after college, like I became consumed with climbing. Hmm. And at that point I basically just you know, put the guitar in the corner because they're kind of mutually exclusive and they definitely compete with each other. They both use it's, your fingers a lot. Yeah. <laughs> they both require skin on your fingers. You know, they both make your forearms. forearms. Tired. <laughs> <laughs> so basically I just, you know, whatever it was 2000 or 2001, I basically decided like, no, I'm a climber now. And I just kind of, you know, I always had the guitar around even when I dirt bagged, like the, I brought the guitar with me but I almost never played it just because it was like, I got, I'm climbing tomorrow. I can't afford to like mess up my skin. Oh my goodness. My wife would laugh. We just shuffle the guitar in and out of the truck every day. It was in the way. I never touched it. <laughs> never touched yeah. it. Yeah, totally. So anyway, and then like what actually uh, like set off this renaissance was I went to an Iron Maiden concert in 2019. <laughs> and like 
And like, I had this old electric guitar that was my older brother's and I never touched it. And I, I, I brought it out after the concert and started trying to like learn some like Iron Maiden licks that I'd heard in the, in the show. And like, I really liked it. And my son was like, thought it was really cool. And so I, then I just started collecting things and, you know. Did your son make the Iron Maiden guitar behind my, your head? My daughter made that. Oh, that was that's my, hilarious. my birthday present. Yeah. For those that can't see, it's like this giant cutout of a guitar colored bright red with Iron Maiden like sticker or emblem on it. Yeah. Yeah. It's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. So, and then the timing was kind of perfect because I, I was, you know, like I got the amp, like the Christmas right before the pandemic. So mm. Christmas 2019, I guess. And then the guy, like the, that small acoustic guitar I got like a week before the pandemic. Oh, it. so you were already starting to get back into it. It wasn't yeah. like a total lockdown it was, thing. It was kind of a coincidence, except that when the lockdown happened, suddenly I had all this free time, you know, and I was at home all day. So I started like the amount of playing I did just went through the roof and I couldn't climb. Mm. Um, I had all this time to kill. So I just started yep. playing guitar like many, many hours a day and my ability went through the roof. And um, so then it just becomes more fun. Like, it was, it was like with anything, there's like this, this um, payoff point where, you know, once you get good enough at it, it gets way more fun. Then you can practice more, then you get better. Yep. And you, it becomes like a positive vicious cycle versus yep. like the self-defeating cycle of every time I try to play, I suck. And then it yeah. makes you want to play less. And then yeah, you get so, that initial learning curve of just pure fun. Like you're yeah, always getting better. Totally. Even, even if you had played before, you kind of pick it back up and you have another learning curve. Yeah, or, yeah. Or maybe kind of you're back down lower on the same curve, but coming back up it again. Yeah. Um, so do you write music? Or are you mostly just into like relearning just classic yeah, I've, riffs? Yeah, I've never and, really written anything. Okay. I mean, I've I've like come up with a few licks or whatever, but no, I've never like written a song or whatever. I, I think it's something I think I would do at some point. I look at it very, I think there's a lot of parallels between music and climbing, mm -hmm. but like, you know, the, like writing a song is, you know, like the equivalent of doing a first ascent. Although, you know, with the first ascent, you're not creating the rock, you're just discovering it. Right. Um, so maybe, you know, I probably takes more effort and talent to write a song than it does to do a first day, first ascent. But like, I think the parallel is there where it's like, are you just repeating what other people have already done? You know, learning a song that somebody else wrote, or are you, you know, paving your own way and creating right. something that's original. But sometimes you got to do a lot of repeating to pave your own that's, way too. I yeah. think so. And I, I mean, I feel like it, it's funny, like another where another place where there's a parallel is as a climber, I always felt like I wasn't worthy to do a first ascent, right? Mm. Like I felt like I had to be a certain ability. I had to have climbed enough thing. You know, I kind of felt like, and I get people asking me like, oh, is that an open project? Can I do that? And my, my, I never, yeah, I wouldn't say this, but my, my thinking is like, well, have you done all the other routes? <laughs> right like all the other have routes? you done this route and yeah. that route and this route because like why do you want to do this why do you want to do my project you know it's a good point actually if you're if you just need something to climb i can give you a list of 10 <laughs> 514s in clear creek canyon that i'm that haven't been repeated mm. you know so go do one of those and then when you've done all those check back in with me and then we can talk about if you know if you should get a shot at my project but you know really they wanted you know i think they really want the glory the of first ascent FA, glory. right have you had that problem a lot no, okay. not a lot. Yeah, okay. um, but yeah, um, so anyway, that's kind of how I felt about FAs. Like I needed to kind of earn the right to do that by, by climbing what's already there. And I guess, you know, I don't think I need to earn the right to write a song, but I do think, you know, you need to like learn the craft. Sure. Right. And, yep. um, you know, same playing. with cooking. I mean, you got to follow some recipes before you just yeah, start making yeah. soup. And I, I mean, there's people who probably pick up a guitar and just write a song for, you know without really mm -hmm. doing anything you know studying any music first and um more power to them i just you know my process maybe it's the engineer part of me i feel like mm -hmm. i need to yeah. follow like 
I need to like study the masters before I would, you know. Are you like classically trained? Do you read music and music I'm not theory? classically trained. I mean, I, I was in band and okay. as a kid. I did, you know, all the way through <laughs> yeah. high school, I played trombone. So like I can read sheet music. I, I play piano a little bit um, and I can read sheet music. But like reading sheet music for guitar is not really a thing. Like uh, if you're not familiar with guitar, there's this thing called tab, which is like right, right. the poor man's sheet music, which is just like numbers, you know, it's a number and, and each line represents a string on the guitar and the number is what tells you where to you put press. your fingers. Yeah. yeah. So like I read tab, but I I've never tried to read like proper sheet music for a guitar. I just don't see the point in it. And yeah, if you're into like hard rock, it's rarely written out that way. I can't anyway, imagine. Like yeah. I'm sure there's a book somewhere in the back of some music store where somebody has like written out the music <laughs> yeah. to like some Iron Maiden solo, but it's pretty rare. Yeah. Yeah. But I do have a bunch of tab books, like so. I, I learn, yeah. Mostly, I learn songs from tab books, but I I can play by ear sometimes. It's just very tedious, like listening to the song over and over and over again, trying to figure out what's being played. And I've done that a few times, and it's very time consuming. Oh man, that takes me back going to these like online, like really poorly designed like tab diagrams yeah. of just random songs. I used to do that all the time. Yeah. Well, that's, I, I spent like my whole senior year of college basically doing that and like, <laughs> yep. you know, just doing barely enough to make sure I was going to graduate and then <laughs> playing guitar all the time. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that about you. So that was kind of a new history. Yeah. Well, I want to give you time before you got to run and pick up your kids, but along those same lines, I, I want to give your wife Kate credit. And here's something you wrote um, from the interview and it's kind of a long passage, but I'm going to read it verbatim. You said, Kate is extremely supportive of my climbing, and I would not have accomplished anything as a climber without her support. Before we had kids, she was just a super devoted partner. In those days, she did all sorts of crazy things that no normal significant other would put up with. For instance, wrapping 70 meters to stand on a tiny barnacle-covered rock in the Tasman Sea, literally getting pummeled by icy cold waves while I fiddled with gear on the totem pole. And you go on, it's actually a pretty long quote. I'm not going to read the rest of it. But So what has it been like? I mean, you've kind of, we've kind of danced around the subject for a while, but having kids, being a super driven rock climber, having these projects, you know, driving all over the place, like, I mean, is it fair to say she's carried a bunch of weight for you? Oh, for sure. Yeah, no, <laughs> it's definitely fair to say that. Yeah. And I think, um, I think with every, I, I would be interested to do a study of this. Someone should write a book about the Blairs, you know, like, I think for every super accomplished climber, there's a story behind who's the Blair, like who's putting in, right. who's sacrificing their goals to support right. that person. And you hear these stories about like um, superstar climbing couples, and I definitely will not name any names, but like, you know, two, like a famous male and a famous female mm -hmm. climber and they date for a while and then it doesn't work out. It's like big surprise. Like if you had that kind of talent where you're like one of the top five or six climbers in the world, would you want to spend your days like going to your boyfriend's crag or your girlfriend's crag to to belay them when you could be pursuing your own goals and music very, type a personalities involved. Yeah, exactly. And, and like thing. very yep. few people are willing to, to like sacrifice their own, mm -hmm. you know, objectives for that, you know, for, for the sake of their significant other or whatever. So, um, as far as I can tell all the really accomplished climbers, I know they have someone, you know, they have like that sidekick or that, you know, um, who's doing all the heavy lifting really, I think. And, you know, it's not that hard to just, to be the person that everyone's like planning around, <laughs> you know, to be the, you know, the, the superstar or whatever. And, um, you know, it's the people behind the scenes that I think that really make the difference. And I, I, I'm completely sincere that I don't think I would have accomplished anything. I was really lucky. I've been really lucky to have Kate, 
um, because she is willing to go to whatever crag I want to go to. And she's willing to go there like six weekends in a row, <laughs> even when like it's snowing and no one else is there. We're the only people at the crag and, you know, and you got to stay in some shitty town where somebody got murdered down, you know, <laughs> in the alley behind the hotel, like a couple of weeks ago. You wow. know? So yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of people would not be willing to put up with all that stuff and she's been game. What was it like in the early days of having, like, maybe when your son was first born? Because I hear that a lot. Like, people with kids who are new to, and I don't have kids, I don't know, but I've heard enough firsthand stories of those early days can be so hard. Or maybe when they start walking, like, how did you guys work that out? So, you know, my approach was like, um, I, I wanted to keep the train rolling and I didn't want to provide the impression that there was another option. So, like, we were at the crag, like, I want to say Logan was like maybe five weeks old mm. when we were going, we were back at the crag. And at this point I was developing a crag at shelf, um, called the North gym. So like he was born, um, like the second week of January. And I know by the end of February, definitely no later than the, than the end of February, we were back at shelf. Like, yeah, you've got that photo of him in like the little basket. Yeah. Yeah, yeah totally. And like, um, the kids, kids are super adaptable. I mean, mm -hmm. think about the history of like humanity, you know, kids are, they're not super tough, I guess, in, you know, physically, they're not like, you know, built like a, a crocodile or something, but, but as far as like their willingness to put up with, you know, um, unpleasant weather or a long day or whatever, like humans are built to, to be pretty resilient. Yeah. And I think if you, if you spend a couple of years coddling your baby and teaching them that they're going to be inside all the time and the temperature is always going to be 70 degrees. And then you try to take them to the crag. I could see that being really traumatizing, <laughs> but you know, my kids never had that experience. They went to the crag right away. So they were always used to it. Um, I think the harder thing would be on Kate for sure. Cause now it's like, she's got to coddle me all day long, but also she has to take care of our kids now too. And yeah, that was and part like, of the I'm quote. Useless. You're like putting up with your tantrums. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> it's like I, my, I've got, I got to keep my skin dry. So I'm not messing with any like dirty diapers or anything <laughs> like during, you know, between red point goes like, I got to keep my skin, you know, in good oh, shape. <laughs> so, so I was totally like useless. And I mean, the, the one area is helpful is I can carry a lot of stuff. Like mm. I have strong legs. So I would have a really heavy pack and I would carry whatever amenities I thought would make it, you know, better. Like when I was doing Grand Ole Opry, Logan was, um, well, I'm going to say he was one, a little over one. So he was kind of at that like worst possible age where he can walk. Walk, yeah. So like I would carry like a pack and play out to the monastery and, you know, we, it's basically like a, you know, it's like a That's a hefty crib, walk. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like a 45 minute uphill both ways exactly. kind of hike, you know? <laughs> And, uh, but you know, that's what it took to like be able to get a belay on my project. So, and he would just like sit in that thing and cry the whole time, like the whole belay session. And Kate's like stressed out. Cause like, I'm like slack, slack. And, and you know, baby's crying like 10 feet away from her and stuff. And like, and there's the way the crag is shaped, there's kind of like this, what we call a Gumby parade, like going underneath the route. And it's mm -hmm. like the steep goalie. So you're always worried about rocks falling. And like, you've got a baby in this crib and you're like, wow. don't knock any rocks down, you know? Man. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we tried to find a sheltered spot where he, you know, we we were pretty pretty confident nothing would fall on him. But still, it's it's a stressful environment, and you know, for good reason, mothers are wired to be a little bit more sensitive oh, to yeah. you know the needs of their children, and so fathers tend to be more like, oh, whatever, it'll be fine. But like women are like, no, this is not a safe situation, or like this is stressful for me, or you know, I think there's a 
psychological, you know, a physiological response that happens in a woman, you know, in a mother when their baby starts crying and the, you know, the father doesn't feel that, but it's, mm. it can be very stressful for a woman and, or for a mother. And, um, you know, she put up with a lot of shit. Let's, so let's so it's fair way. to say you had to really want it and you had to have a partner that was just willing to kind of go more yeah, than the extra and honestly, mile. I couldn't tell you why she was willing to put up. <laughs> I was kind of was amazed. Like I always felt like every once in a while we'd have these conversations where I'd be like, you know, you can say no, right? Like you could, at some point you could be like, this is too much. Like I'm not, you know, we're not hiking through two feet of snow to get to your project today or whatever, you know, but she, and she'd be like, yeah, I know, but you know, you really, it means a lot to you. So we can do it and I can, I can handle it. Man. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's a rare arrangement. I think yeah. it is. Cause I don't have kids, but we still bat, you know, buckheads over that kind of stuff sometimes. Yeah. Certainly when we were living on the road and we kind of had to live it together. Yeah. You, know, you can't just sit at home while I go out or whatever. Yeah. Interesting. Well, is there anything, I mean, I want to give you time. Is there anything else you wanted to cover that we haven't talked about? Anything at all? Did you think kids have, getting on kids, would, was that any, you know, I, I also hear from people who say, yeah, the financial independence thing is a lot harder with kids. And I appreciate they obviously cost something, but. Yeah, that's a good question. I think, um, you know, it's hard to say when, you know, Kate and I have both been really lucky in the sense we've had what I consider relatively high paying jobs, mm. right? Okay. So it's easy to talk down and be like, oh, it's, anyone can have financial independence, just do it. You know, it's yep. like, well, yeah, if you make six figures, maybe it's easy, but it might not be easy for someone who's a teacher. No, 100%. Right? So um, all I can say is, you know, we were, we're both engineers. We both had engineer type paying jobs for pretty much our entire working. You know, when you go into the air force, like you're, you're basically an indentured servant, you know, paying back your, mm -hmm. your college commitment. So you, you're not paid well during mm -hmm. those years. Um, like when my first, you know, right out of the air force, I was making like 28 K a year. So during those years, I wasn't making a lot of money, but ever since then, you know, 16 of my 20 working years, basically I was making, you know, on the, on the order of six figures or, okay. you know, close yep. to it. Right. You know, adjusted for inflation or whatever. So, so certainly that helps. Yeah. And, you know, in K2, so that gives us a big leg up. So for two like professionals, you know, I don't think having kids is a big problem, but it, again, it's like you can waste money on anything. So sure. you can buy the world's nicest car seat for your kids, or you can get one used and it's not advised to get a used one, but we got <laughs> used ones anyway. So you know, that's our choice, right? I didn't have a car seat when I was a kid. We yes, just all loaded yeah. up in the van. So for me, having a car seat is a huge improvement over what I had <laughs> as a kid. So, um, you know, my mom used to breastfeed us, like sitting in the front seat of the van, like going 70 miles an hour down the interstate on road trips. So like, to me, it's like, you know, it's all relative. So again, you know, you can waste your money on baby bottles or you can get cheap ones or what have you. I guess you're not supposed to reuse baby bottles either. That's a bad example. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know what I mean? You You're can right. get hand-me-down clothes. Like we don't really buy clothes for our kids. We get all hand-me-downs. Um, so you can, there's ways of doing it frugally, you know, but it, it is definitely an expense. Kids aren't free, but I don't think they're, you know, there's stats out there that it costs like 300 grand or whatever to raise mm. a kid. That's, that's BS. I mean, that's, those are, those people are definitely throwing money away. Hmm. <laughs> you could do it cheaper than that. Where do you think people mostly throw it away? Like just like, is it death by a thousand cuts? Like all the, I think it, yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, we have really close friends who I love who waste lots of money buying whatever gadget they right. can find for their kid or, you know, they, they buy their clothes at baby gap, you know, mm. instead of yeah. a Kmart or whatever, right, right, you know? Right. Um, and you know, there's bigger things, to, you know, child, child care is expensive. So yeah, if you're working, you're putting your kids yeah. in, 
in daycare, there's expensive daycare and there's less expensive daycare and, you know, things like that. There's, you know, you can send your kid to a private school or you can send them to public school mm-hmm. or, or what have you. So yeah, the lines can start to diverge quite widely. Yeah. I mean, there's, you can certainly go out of your way to waste money yeah. if you want to, but yeah, I, I think it's more of the death by a thousand cuts thing. And if your attitude is just like, you know, I wouldn't spend this money on myself, so I'm not going to spend it on my child. So, um, you know, <laughs> you can do it cheaply for sure. Anything else on the horizon for the family? Anything you guys just sitting here local or big, you know, we got a big soccer tournament coming up <laughs> on Saturday. To, so yeah. we're pretty excited about that. Um, we'll see how we do. Gonna be really you going to keep cool? I'm going to try to keep my cool. Yeah. <laughs> try to oh, keep my great. voice down, not yell at the refs or, or any of that stuff. So. This is where it starts getting serious. Yeah. yeah. By like 10, 12. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. Where I grew up, like baseball was like super serious at those ages. Yeah. Like way too heated, way too heated. Yeah. Yeah. I know. And, and, uh, I'll try to keep my temper in control and, you know, try to remember this is just for fun. Well, I appreciate your time, Mark. This was super fun. I'm glad to get an update with you. Yeah. We hadn't even really, you and I hadn't talked, so it's kind of caught up here in real time. So you're all hearing it.